Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. I've titled today's message, The Truth on Tongues. As we begin, you'll also want to mark your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, because I'm going to be referencing that chapter as we go during the message. But from 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, last Sunday we learned not to embrace every spirit as if it were from God, but rather to test, to examine, to compare everything carefully with Scripture to discern which spirits we should and should not quench. God willing, we're going to finish 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, actually 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 5 next week, um, but today we're going to zero in on the command found in verse 20. The command verse in verse 20 which states, Do not despise prophetic utterances. Now, charismatics have gotten a lot of traction in this verse, uh, unfortunately, and there are numerous false teachings that arise from it that we need to defend ourselves against. We need to address them. Um, Folks, many have been taught that until you speak in an unintelligible babble, uh, you are not sealed with the Holy Spirit. Many have been taught that uh, that is not true, uh, but it can cause people to wonder. Uh, People like us and well-intended people, uh, we can wonder, are they right? Should I really be doing this? And and am I really saved if not, because they say that I'm not? And and where really should we be falling out on this topic? Uh, Verse 20 says, do not despise prophetic utterances and causes a hesitation with us. Boy, we wouldn't want to do that, right? A more precise translation is simply do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. Uh, The New American Standard Bible adds the word utterances, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But the English Standard Version, the ESV, is technically more accurate when it states, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Well, I'm really glad the verse 21 is there, right? Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. But because there are multiple forms of prophecy, the The New American Standard correctly describes these prophecies, uh, these utterances in verse 20 as prophetic utterances. In this passage, we're not talking about written prophecy. Every prophecy of Scripture, as the uh, the Apostle Peter describes it, uh, some conservatives actually attempt to dismiss verse 20 uh, by simply suggesting Paul is warning, don't despise Scripture. That just is not an adequate explanation for this. Uh, It's just not accurate. 
We also aren't talking about prophetic visions or dreams, which are very rare in the Bible. Uh, only two people in the Bible ever interpreted dreams. Did you know that? Yeah, Joseph and Daniel. So don't ask me to interpret your dream, all right? I'm not one of them. Most dreams do not need an interpretation. In fact, when uh, the Lord spoke uh, through a dream to Joseph, take your Take Mary and your child and flee to Egypt. He didn't need any interpretation at all. So most dreams don't even require an interpretation. And Paul warns churches in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 17 to not give heed to private dreams and visions. Things that people have say they have seen. Um, folks, if, if God wants to give me a message through a dream, he'll give me the dream. He won't give it to you to then relay to me. Um, you are not an apostle and Christ does not direct his church through yours or mine private dreams or visions or experiences. Uh, folks, citing private experiences, personal experience that only one person has had has, has, has merely become a source of abuse and manipulation in churches. In our passage... God is not talking about prophecy as it is stated in print in Scripture, nor of visions and dreams. Instead, verse 20 is talking about audible, prophetic utterances. We know that that is the spiritual gift of tongues. Those, verse 21 assures, must be carefully examined and tested. So today we're going to be putting tongues to the test. Is that all right? We're going to put tongues to the test. Before we begin, a word about prophecy that I mentioned last week, but want to bring to our attention again. The Hebrew and Greek terms that we translate prophecy or to prophesy are never to be defined as telling the future. They are never scripturally defined as telling the future. Instead, uh, the Greek word propheteu, uh, it means to speak forth from God. To prophesy means to speak for God. The person who claims to prophesy or calls himself a prophet is saying, I speak for God. Well, that is a pretty bold claim. In the Old Testament, the prophets often began their messages with these four words, thus saith the Lord. And if the Lord was truly speaking through a given prophet at some point or at some time during that prophet's ministry, during his preaching ministry, at least one of his prophetic messages or, or prophecies would include a, a completely unpredictable event. At some point in his ministry, he would include a, a completely unpredictable event. Uh, this was so Israel could verify, Deuteronomy 18, that he is a true prophet of God, that he truly spoke for God. His validating prediction, it would have to be very, very specific. All right. Well, I like the time that a, that a plane crash is going to happen next week. Time and place of a plane crash. Uh, prophets were not validated through making general 
predictions. Uh, uh, we hear many among false prophets today. Uh, they might uh, meet you somewhere and they will speak to you saying things like, uh, you know, I see you going to college, you young folks. I see you going to college and becoming an architect. But people have been so gullible for Satan's tricks over the years. How do false prophets relay um, private information about you? Well, folks, there are invisible spirits, those demonic spirits that know that you like playing with Lincoln Logs growing up. They know that you like talking to everyone about skyscrapers and how to build them, talking to your friends. The demonic realm can potentially observe everything that you are reading and everything that you are writing in your diary and can surely prompt someone under their influence to speak forth something specific about you or your family that you thought nobody else could possibly know. Fallen spirits know the country of origin of your ancestor. They know your, uh, the maiden name of your great grandmother. Uh, they can offer you predictions based on things that they have heard you discuss with other people in private. Uh, they cannot, however, and they never do, they cannot give you the winning numbers to next week's lottery. They cannot do it. They never do it. Uh, they can only give you the losing numbers. Specific predictions validated a true prophet of God. But to prophesy does not mean to tell the future. It means to speak for God. Much of what God's prophets spoke had nothing to claim about the future, uh, but an Old Testament prophet would at some point during his earthly ministry describe a, a completely unforeseeable event that would authenticate that he was truly sent from God. Fast forward to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out and God changes gears. God switches gears at Pentecost and instead of having to wait to see whether a prediction would come true, the church could now immediately know God was speaking through someone when that person spoke fluently in a language that they have never learned from a country that they did not grow up in and was not their origin, a place they've never lived. Uh, meanwhile, bystanders who are from that country, who grew up in that nation, would interpret for everyone what was said. For the benefit of Christ's church, the validating element of a prophecy became immediate. You didn't have to wait anymore to hear uh, or to tell whether what was said is so. Therefore, as we heard reading Acts chapter 2 earlier during our scripture reading, the events at Pentecost, they function as a gold standard. They are the litmus test. It is Pentecost. This is the gold standard for speaking in tongues. And if you're going to call yourself a Pentecostal, your behavior better look exactly like what occurred at Pentecost. 
The Greek word for tongues in Acts chapter 2, it's glossa. It indicates a valid human language. We use the term glossa for glossary, which means a vocabulary or dictionary of a human language. And as I illustrated for us last week, if Steve Elger suddenly broke out in perfectly fluent Dutch, and if Patrick Griffian, who is a native of the Netherlands, was present to interpret for us what Steve said, that tongue would, through Patrick's interpretation, become prophecy. God speaking to us. And speaking in tongues was the way that God temporarily communicated new covenant information to his church before the New Testament canon of Scripture was completed. Then we see in the last chapter of the book, and in the book of Revelation, the last chapter, we are strictly warned not to add to the prophecies contained in this book. Very strict warning uh, in the last chapter of the Bible. It's also important to recognize that uh, spontaneously speaking in a foreign language, spontaneously speaking in a foreign language by itself was not prophesying. That is a tongue, okay? It was only after that tongue was interpreted or had been interpreted for the church that it qualified as prophecy. God speaking to us. You have to have an interpretation to know what God is speaking to the church. Previous to the interpretation, tongues or, or foreign languages, well, they became like a, a noisy gong or, or a clanging cymbal, said Paul. He's implying it's something really annoying. If you've ever traveled to Brazil, and everybody in the household is conversing in Portuguese except for you, it can eventually become quite irritating because you can't understand anything that is said. And after a period of time, if you aren't included in that conversation through interpretation, you would prefer that they all would just remain silent. Don't ask me how I know that. But imagine if there were multiple foreign languages being spoken all at once, none of which you could understand. Folks, like occurred at Pentecost. If that went on for any length of time without orderly interpretation, you might begin to despise those utterances. As an illustration, I was going to bring uh, forward to the front of the church for us. I was going to bring up Rita and Patrick and Giselle side by side. And I was going to ask them to speak at the same time Portuguese and Dutch and Spanish to test how long we could possibly tolerate it. 
before we're just pulling our hair out without interpretation. Uh, folks, tongues left uninterpreted can never edify. They only cause confusion. They must be interpreted. Confusion is what happened to the church in Corinth. And the early church needed someone, well, they needed someone to come in, you know, and, and establish some ground rules for this because of all the confusion that was going on. Uh, something like, um, oh, I don't know, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three. And each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent. And these are the exact rules that the Apostle Paul gave in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 28, uh, which is the very next letter that Paul wrote after he finished 1 and 2 Thessalonians. He gave some ground rules to the church. And if there is an interpreter present for each language, then those tongues become prophecy. God speaking to his church. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 31, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn, see the intent there, so that all may learn and be exhorted, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That means that these who are interpreting and prophesying for the church, their spirit is subject to the prophets of the Old Testament. Meaning they can't say anything in their interpretation that contradicts the logic of the Old Testament. It must always remain in harmony with what the prophets have spoken. For God is not a God of confusion, says Paul, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So this is universal. All the churches have to follow these same ground rules. Therefore, verse 39 says, My brethren, desire, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Do not forbid to speak in tongues, as long as they can be interpreted so that tongues become prophecy and tongues must be spoken in an orderly manner and they must be interpreted. Friends, this is not all that difficult. We, we make it much harder than what it actually is. Foreign languages... Uninterpreted foreign languages always serve as a source of confusion. If you don't believe me, read the story of Babel. It was confusion. And until interpreted, uh, there always will be confusion. Paul continues by reasoning in verse 23 of uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? 
Folks, that is precisely what happened at Pentecost. The unbelievers began mocking the apostles and said, well, they're drunk. They were the others who couldn't understand. And they said, it sounds like they're all under the influence. That's what happened with tongues and when unbelievers enter. But Paul continues. He said, but if all prophesy, that means to interpret or to, to speak God's word clearly, says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. It means his, his heart is laid bare naked before the word of God. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, says Paul, declaring that God is certainly among you. That's what happens when the word of God is clearly preached. Why does he fall on his face, the ungifted or unbelieving man? It's because he understands the message. He comprehends what is being spoken. Folks, the primary emphasis of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 the primary emphasis is this. Tongues must always be interpreted so that prophecy can be understood by everyone. That, that is the emphasis of that famous chapter on uh, governing tongues. Tongues must always be interpreted so that prophecy can be understood by everybody. Paul also states in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that tongues, that means languages still left interpreted, they are a sign for unbelievers. If the language is not interpreted, it becomes to those who hear it a sign of God's judgment. It means God's message remains hidden. It can't be comprehended. And the listeners continue oblivious to God's justice and ignorant to God's mercy through Jesus Christ when it is just a tongue. So tongues are assigned to unbelievers of judgment. But prophecy, that means tongues when they are properly interpreted, prophecy is a sign for believers. Because once there is an interpretation, folks, then we get the message. Then we get the message. Prophecy actually benefits the church. It is edifying to the church uh, while tongues only cause confusion. With all that said, what do you think Paul would say is the greater gift? Tongues or prophecy? Prophecy. The interpretation, the clear speaking of God's word, whether that would be uh, reading it from scripture or being interpreted from a tongue, Paul says, greater is the one who prophesies, who speaks the word of God clearly, than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Teaching and edification, that was the purpose it would be better for me to read to you scripture, 
prophecy of Scripture, to read directly Scripture, that is a form of prophesying. Speaking forth the Word of God clearly, just plainly reading Scripture, it'd be better for me to do that, speaking for God, than to let someone babble unintelligibly, without interpretation. Folks, prophecy is always intelligible. We can always understand it. Uh, therefore, Paul says in the church, this is Paul speaking of himself, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words with a tongue. Because the tongue, although it may be in, in some way personally edifying to, to speak in a language you have never learned, I don't know. Although it may some way edify you individually, still when it remains uninterpreted, a tongue remains useless to everybody else. The only the only the only purpose that it serves uninterpreted is a sign of God's judgment to unbelievers. It, it remains a jumbled message to everyone. Folks, tongues cannot save, and tongues uninterpreted cannot teach or edify. It's just a jumbled message. But once they are interpreted, tongues become prophecy and a conduit of grace and edification for everyone who hears, everybody in the church. Folks, when you look at the Old Testament and the warnings about tongues that cannot be understood, it's given in the context of judgment that um, there will be invaders who come into your land and they're going to speak in a language you can't understand. And that means they're attacking your city. And as happened with Assyria, and as happened with uh, Babylon, when foreigners come and you can't understand what they're saying, uh, historically in the Bible, it's a sign of judgment. It's not a good thing to not understand uh, what is being spoken um, at all. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come speaking, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by a way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching, things that are intelligible? So you also, says Paul, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, that means interpreted, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air, says Paul. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks, to, uh, speaks will be a barbarian to me. It means there's, there's no benefit between the barbarians. 
They're, they're only estranged because they're not having communication. Paul's conclusion. So you also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray he may interpret. Why pray for an interpreter? Well, it's because uninterpreted tongues produce confusion and division and barbarians rather than abounding in edification for the church. And Paul's verdict is handed down in verse 28. He says, but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. It's an imperative. He must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Layman's terms, that is, to stay quiet. Keep, keep it to yourself. There's sometimes confusion over verse 13 that states, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. The charismatics would suggest that uh, this implies that the one speaking in a tongue is allowed to interpret his own babble. That is not faithful to the context, nor is it faithful to verse 13. In verse 13, there exists no Greek pronoun he in the phrase, pray that he may interpret. He is not present there. It's added uh, for, to help aid our understanding and the Greek word interpret is written in the third person singular. How many remember middle school grammar? If you remember any of it, I have small faded memories of some of that. Um, the third person does not refer to the speaker. That is the first person. Uh, nor does it refer to the audience, that is the second person. In grammar, the third person is always referring to somebody else. In 1 Corinthians 14, in verse 13, it refers to a go-between who is not the speaker, nor the audience. He is an interpreter. A better understanding of verse 13 may be, though as we know I'm not a Greek scholar, nor do I claim to be. The interpretation would be better. Let one who speaks in a tongue pray that there will be a third person to interpret for everyone else. Pray there will be somebody there who can speak the word of God clearly from what you say. This is why verse 28 states, If there is no interpreter, he must keep silent. Paul does not say, If there is no interpreter, interpret it yourself. No, no. Paul says, In that case, remain silent. You don't get to interpret your own gibberish for the church. Scripture never allowed you to, to interpret your own tongue. To do so would short-circuit the validation process to know whether it's really God speaking. 
Allowing the same person speaking in a tongue to do their own interpreting would only result in the same abuse and manipulation that we find with people bringing their visions and dreams. It's relying on one person driving the agenda of the church through their private dreams and visions and tongues. Folks, there always has to be an element of validation before the pastor demands of his congregation, the Spirit says I need a new jet airplane. The type of ridiculous stuff that you find in charismatic circles. Um, in fact, I get the impression in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'm not going to be extremely dogmatic on this, but I get the impression in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that even the person speaking the tongue doesn't understand the foreign language which he is speaking until somebody interprets it. How do I arrive at that? Because Paul says of himself, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind remains unfruitful. Paul says, I don't even understand. Suggest so Paul doesn't know what he is speaking, even though the, or even the Apostle Paul himself says, I need an interpreter. Even so, it, it may have possibly been privately edifying in some way to speak in a foreign language uh, that you, you yourself can't even understand. It, 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 it'd be odd, but strangely odd, uh, if I started speaking in Portuguese to myself, I don't know why I would do it, but it would have to be something uh, from God, I guess. But if there's not a Portuguese interpreter present, I would have to remain silent. If that scenario were to occur, Paul would say, keep it to yourself. Could the person speaking a tongue ever understand what he is saying without interpretation? I think the passage suggests that is highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. Uh, but nonetheless, folks, it is a moot point for the church today. It's a moot point. It, it really doesn't matter, and I'll tell you why. There is no one anywhere in the world today who is spontaneously breaking out in valid human languages that they have never studied. People don't even claim that they're doing it. A, a humble man like Steve here breaking out in fluent Dutch never happens today. Not even 1% of the time. When you go to the Pentecostal churches, they don't even pretend anymore that they're speaking a valid human language. They don't even make that claim any longer uh, that they are replicating those things which were experienced at Pentecost. Uh, so Pentecostal church are not even Pentecostal. All they ever do is babble unintelligibly. They teach one another to do the same. And if they had truly the spiritual gift of tongues if they truly were expressing the spiritual gift of tongues in these circles, you would think that at least maybe one out of every thousand times or so, 
somebody in those groups would accidentally stumble across a human language. But it never happens. They never do. Why? Because since the completion of Revelation, the New Testament canon of prophecy is completed, it is closed, and we do not add to the prophecies contained in this book. God the Holy Spirit doesn't do it anymore. And the fact that these groups never, ever, never, ever utter a bona fide human language fulfills the prediction that the Apostle Paul made in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8. He writes, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When perfection comes, that is the second advent of Jesus Christ. When perfection comes, then the partial will be done away. Until then, we only have in our possession partial knowledge and partial prophecy. It's only when perfection comes that that partial knowledge and partial prophecy will be done away because we will enjoy the full knowledge and the full revelation of God because he will be speaking directly to us. We will be in the presence of God. Um, when he speaks directly to us, that will be complete prophecy. But meanwhile, until then, in, in the meantime, during this church age, the extent of our knowledge and the extent of new prophecy about God, it will be done away. Our, oh, excuse me, the extent of our knowledge and, pro, and prophecy will remain partial for now. Knowledge and prophecy is partial. Our means of acquiring and adding new knowledge and new prophecy about God, our process, our means of adding new knowledge and adding new prophecy about God Paul says, it will be done away. That happened, folks, when Revelation was completed. There remains no channel any longer to attain more knowledge about God or add further revelation of God through prophecy. What we have is partial. Partial knowledge, partial prophecy. Both Paul's and John's, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John's point is this. We don't keep adding to the Bible. We don't keep adding knowledge. We don't keep adding prophecy. Therefore, if there are gifts of prophecy and acquiring new knowledge, he says, they're going to be done away. And he says, if there are tongues, they will cease. Paul says, expect tongues to cease. This is the apostle's whole point right here 
Don't expect the gifts of prophecy and of knowledge to keep contributing to our understanding over time. After revelation was complete, knowledge about God will not continue to accumulate during the church age. The partial knowledge that we currently enjoy is enough. And it is not going to become complete or accumulate through the exercising of prophetic gifts. It's not going to continue to amass. Paul says we only have partial. And the partial that we have will only be done away when that which is perfect comes. That's the only way that the partial is going to be done away, is the return of Christ. We aren't going to do away with this partial knowledge and partial prophecy by adding more and more prophecy all the time. Do you follow me? Paul tells us to expect that the accumulation of knowledge about God through prophecy will be done away and tongues will cease. We are not to be constantly expecting a new word or a new revelation to be added. There's a song that says, Give me a revelation. Tell me what to do. It's actually a pretty good song. The theology is really, really bad. Horrible theology in that song. Our knowledge is partial, and our prophecy is partial, and the gift of tongues has ceased. And when Christ returns, the partial will be done away because our knowledge of him will be made full. And the gifts of tongue and prophecy have ceased once the last apostle John died shortly after writing Revelation. Uh, we don't add to the prophecies, as I said earlier. And this is the understanding of prophecy that the historic church has always had. The greater historic church has always embraced that the prophetic gifts and tongues have ceased. How can we know for sure that tongues have ceased? Well, for one, Scripture tells us to expect that they're going to cease. And secondly, nowhere on the planet today are tongues manifest in valid human languages like they were on the day of Pentecost. Never happens. Never happens. We have God's Word perfect. It is complete. What could possibly be added to it through a long-haired hippie? Nothing against long hair. Through these groups, what could possibly be added to it that we are lacking in knowledge? Nothing of value ever gets added through these things. Folks, one of the reasons this, this message is so important for us today is that Christians are being bombarded by charismatics claiming that the mark of a true Christian is speaking in unintelligible gibberish that they falsely claim to be tongues. You don't need to be bothered by them. We have the word of God in our possession they attempt to suggest that rather than being human languages, tongues are the same as the Spirit's groanings in Romans chapter 8. Well, if you read 
the context of the whole chapter of Romans 8, um, the groanings are a consequence of our experiencing corruption on this earth. And while suffering on earth, our spirit groans as we await Christ's return, as our adoption of, as sons, and the redemption of our bodies. In fact, Paul says in that same context, the whole creation groans as it is waiting to be set free from this slavery of corruption. All of creation is groaning, not just us. But nobody believes that creation is uttering tongues or a human language of any kind. And likewise, in Romans 8, verse 26, we read that when the pain becomes so deep that we, we no longer even know how to pray, when, when we agonize to the point that we don't even know to pray because our situation is so bad, Paul says the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The groanings are too deep for words. So groanings are not words. And groanings are not tongues. And since they are not words, they cannot be a prayer language. They are simply our spiritual groanings, which most of us have probably experienced at one crisis or other point in our lives. Another objection to tongues having ceased is, uh, well, it's kind of just a fable of angel speak. Some insist they are speaking in an angelic language. Well, I do suppose there could be an angelic language. I don't really expect angels to converse in English or Hebrew or Greek or any other human language. There may be an angelic language. But Paul says, even if he were to speak in the tongues of men or hypothetically angels... Paul says, if he were to speak in the tongues of angels, but even if he were, unless it were in love interpreted for everyone else, it's still going to sound like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's still going to be useless and unintelligible. So Paul places the hypothetical scenario of speaking in tongues of angels under the identical restrictions as tongues spoken by men. He lumps them together. It, it's given in the identical context. And unless languages are interpreted for everyone, you must remain silent. Therefore, if you're going to speak in the tongues of angels, uh, you better have an angel present on Sunday to interpret for us. Call Clarence. I don't think he's real busy. Christmas season's over. Call Clarence or keep silent. Folks, no matter what way you look at it, tongues as they are described at Pentecost and defined in Scripture, are simply not happening anywhere today. Tongues have ceased. Uh, this is why our Constitution describes uh, this church as being cessationist. Think about it. If God were to communicate through tongues today, what would be so important to hear from Him that the entire church age didn't need to hear. 
2,000 years of church age didn't need it, but for some reason we have to have some kind of message today. Uh, no, that isn't even logical. The church has had in our possession everything we need for faith and practice ever since the apostolic age had closed when John died. At what point, uh, what would God possibly say now? And finally, to the question, am I open to changing my mind? Well, yes, I am. If Steve Elger were to suddenly break out in fluent Dutch or somebody else like him who we know and trust in Portuguese or Russian or some other legitimate foreign language that cannot be faked and that can be interpreted by somebody else here whom we trust, on that day I will ask the elders to revisit the topic of that discussion, uh, perhaps even consider revising our constitution if it were to continue until that happens. No. Until somebody speaks in a bona fide language they have never learned, uh, there's nothing else left about tongues that there is to discuss. I don't come, uh, plan on coming back to this topic real soon. Um, this is the first time I've really devoted a Sunday to it in seven and a half years. You're just lucky today. So it's not something that we stumble upon. Oh, we've mentioned it before and, and, other, and other signs and wonders that people claim to make. This is the first time I've given a full treatment of tongues. Uh, so before we depart, just a few closing notations. When my old pastor, Tom Nelson of Denton Bible Church, taught about tongues many years ago, I haven't listened to this message probably for 15 years, and I think it was maybe recorded in the late 90s, early 2000s somewhere, he approached the topic from a slightly different angle. Uh, he went to the Old Testament and Babel and judgment through tongues, and, and he really packaged it in a different way, arriving at the same conclusion. But his summary at the end of his message is very insightful. And uh, if you need one more evidence that prophetic utterance has ceased, consider these. Consider these. Tom Nelson stated... When you observe groups today who claim to speak in tongues and you compare them to the ground rules that are laid out in Scripture, that means once you test them, test everything uh, to see uh, whether it is so, Scripture says uh, these things. So compare this. Number one, it must be a valid human language. Number two, there must be a separate interpreter present. I'm pulling these out from memory. I'm not quoting him. Um, there must be a separate interpreter present. Number three, if not, the speaker must remain silent. Number four, no more than two or three are permitted to speak on any single Sunday. Number five, two are never allowed to speak at the same time. Number six, they must be interpreted orderly and in turn, one at a time. And number seven, because tongues, once interpreted, become a teaching role, a teaching capacity in front of the whole corporate church. Because once they're interpreted, tongues 
to prophecy are now a teaching capacity before the corporate assembly of the church. Because of this, women are to remain silent. Paul says they are not permitted to speak in that capacity. Doesn't mean we can't welcome one another, greet one another, enjoy dialogue with one another about theology. But in the capacity of instructing the entire congregation, Paul says, concludes really in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 35, it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Even if they have the utterance, which many women probably had, they were not to ex exercise the gift corporately. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, for it, for a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over men. So you don't take that teaching role in front of the entire congregation. Here's a conclusion. Churches who claim to speak in tongues, Tom Nelson had said, they violate every single one of these scriptural codes of conduct. That's just one of them. Every single one they violate. How could you possibly trust what they're speaking? In verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances. Having a firm confidence that tongues have truly ceased. This may be one of the few verses in the New Testament that does not have a direct application for the church today other than stay away from churches that claim to be speaking such prophetic utterances. Test everything carefully. I realize that's a strong statement. I would not be so bold if it were not for the number of stories that I have heard from you and others like you communicating how you were at one time or another deceived by the false teaching that arises out of these circles. Again and again, I hear it coming from you folks, things that directly violate Scripture and the things that they were being taught. And I've witnessed it myself, the false teaching uh, with false tongues that comes on television and online. The people who do it are not credible. They are simply not credible. And anyone today who claims to speak prophetically from God through tongues without being a legitimate human language is by the evidence at Pentecost proven to be a deceiver and a liar. Don't allow your family to get caught up in it. Paul writes, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every evil.